So just coming back, as I mentioned, from Israel, we don't go there because of the size of the country. That's Israel compared to the United States, roughly the size of New Jersey. There's one particular place where the West Bank is on the right and the Mediterranean's on the left, and Israel itself is six miles across. It is a tiny little country, but it is in so many ways the land bridge of the ancient world. It's been the hinge of history for really 40 centuries. So you see Israel there in the blue, off to the yellow is obviously the Arabian Peninsula and the deserts of that and the mountains of Jordan. And down to the south is Egypt and up to the north, it could be the Assyrians, it could be the Babylonians, could be the Persians, could be the Greeks, could be the Romans the Ottomans, and on and on. They're always going to be warring against each other there, and Israel is the land bridge on which all that happens. It's the meeting point. You don't want to fight a war on your own turf if you can help it, so the Egyptians march out from the south, and the Assyrians or the Babylonians from the north, and they always meet in Israel. Israel is that land bridge on which kings and conquerors and military heroes and empires and pharaohs have marched literally for 40 centuries up and down. This is Har Megiddo. We name Armageddon from it. Uh, The city of Megiddo, which has been torn down and rebuilt 27 times over the years. Here's a depiction of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Jerusalem has been besieged 50 times and destroyed 10 times. And yet of all of those pharaohs, all those rulers, all those conquerors, all those generals that have marched up and down the length and the breadth of Israel, the most important set foot was the person who came to this region and preached the most famous sermon of all time. That's the Mount of Beatitudes. That's a church built in 1938 to commemorate the preaching of the Sermon on the Mount. In that area, someplace in that area, Jesus stood. He looked out at that. From the Mount of Beatitudes, that's what you see. That's the cliffs of Arbel and the horns of Hatim off in the distance and the Sea of Galilee and the plains and all of that. And it's right there that this Galilean rabbi, this itinerant carpenter from Nazareth, preaches the sermon of all sermons, the foundation of all true success, the, the measure of God's revelation and God's intention for his people from then till now. It's not the pharaohs. It's not the conquerors. It's not the Napoleons. It's Jesus who on this land made it the holy land and whose message here changed human history. So what I'd like to do this summer is look with you at the foundation of all that. The Beatitudes are to the Sermon on the Mount what a text is to a sermon. These eight statements by Jesus are the foundation upon which the greatest sermon of all time was preached. They are countercultural in the extreme. My heart, I was in Israel and praying about what we'd do together when I got back and what would God have us do together this summer. My heart was drawn again and again to how shocking, how surprising, how upside down these statements, these simple statements turn God's revelation compared to our culture. And I've really come to believe that they are keys to true success. So if you'd like to live a life that God can bless, if you'd like to be the kind of person God can use, if you'd like to experience all of God there is, not just what we may know today, but all that we could know, then these are the keys you need to master. These are the statements we need to internalize. This is the truth we need to celebrate. They've been challenging me as I spent the week on this. These are very familiar statements. We're not going to be looking at eight statements in Leviticus together. These are very familiar passages. But as I've been thinking about them and praying about them and really wrestling with them, I've been really challenged this week, and I feel very strongly that God has a message for me and for you from these simple statements. So if you'd like to live a life...
God can bless, a life of true success. You want to master these principles. Here's the background behind it all. It says in Matthew 14 that Jesus had grown up in Nazareth, as you know, and he left at the beginning of his public ministry and lived in Capernaum by the sea. So that's what Capernaum looks like today. Those are the ruins of the city of Capernaum. But this is what it looked like in Jesus' day. Very significant city, really, in many ways, a pivot point for all of the Galilee. It was on the major trade route called the Via Maris that goes from Egypt down to the south. It branches off to Lebanon and up that road that you see there by Capernaum goes all the way to Damascus and from there into Asia. So the trades, uh, markets, the, the, the marketers, the various enterprises of the world made their way up and down this road and right by Capernaum, making it a major trade route. It's also a significant agricultural breadbasket for all of Israel. And fish captured out of the Sea of Galilee in the first century was dried and salted and exported all over Israel. 22 different species of fish. Even today, 3,000 commercial fishermen work on the Sea of Galilee at night, even today. A very, very vibrant body of water. So Capernaum is a very significant, a very influential economic center and city. And that's where Jesus chooses to base his ministry. And it's from Capernaum the text says that he began preaching in verse 17, Matthew 4, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We'll come back to that. It's in Capernaum that great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And it is in Capernaum that seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him. The rabbi typically sat while the people stood, the opposite of our way of the worshiping. I've always been a little nervous about that. I thought if I was sitting and you were standing, you could just walk out, you know. I like the fact that at least I can see you now as you do that. That's where we get the idea of the professor's chair, by the way, is the authority sitting while the people stand. And so Jesus goes up on a hillside or a mountainside, and he sits down, having seen these massive crowds. His disciples came to him. The Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, are not how to become a Christian. They're how to live as Christians. They're intended for disciples. They're intended for followers of Jesus. The text says that he opened his mouth and taught them. Seems a strange phrase, doesn't it? You wouldn't say, I opened my mouth and preached today. You wouldn't say that. But opened his mouth and taught was a particular figure of speech, which meant he was about to utter divine oracles. He was about to speak something of divine revelatory significance. It's a figure of speech, a very significant statement about the authority with which Jesus is about to preach. That's the idea. And from there, of course, he begins the Sermon on the Mount. And that begins with this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the foundation for all the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, the foundation for all the Sermon on the Mount. This is the thing we have to get right. If we don't get this right, we don't get Christianity right. I've come to realize this week that if we don't understand this, if we don't live out of this, then the whole orientation by which we're seeking to relate to God is off, 180 degrees off. It's plugging something into the wrong socket. It's putting a square peg in a round hole. It's trying to get connected to a power source in the wrong way. This is the key. That's why I started with this. That's why this is the first statement of the most significant sermon of all time because it's the foundation everything else hangs off of or stands on or is built on. So we're going to walk through it for just a moment. Let's look at these words and see what they mean. begins with blessed. The Greek word is makarios. It has in it the idea of a well-being that transcends circumstance, exactly the opposite of what his culture and our culture 
defines a success. We're always seeking happiness in our culture. We're always about that which is based on happenings. We want our lives to be prosperous. We want to be healthy. We want to be wealthy. So did the Jews. So did the Romans of Jesus' time. In fact, the Jews had this idea that the healthier and wealthier you are, the more you were being blessed by God. And if you're somehow suffering, that you're being punished by God. You may remember in John 9, the man that was born blind and the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned that he was born blind? Was it him or his parents? That was just their idea. We can't have that same idea. That if you're healthy today, if you're wealthy, if you're doing well, that you're all that the world can offer. You're, having, you're experiencing all that life can give because that's all we think life can give. What God offers is a blessedness, a sense of well-being that transcends your circumstances. God offers you a sense of joy and peace. God offers us a sense of inner serenity and security that the world can neither give nor take. That's what Jesus offers. That's what's on the table. That's the presentation. That's what Jesus invites us to grasp. Blessed. You can leave today with a sense of well-being that transcends every circumstance you face this week. You can have a joy that the world can neither give nor take. You can have a well-being that your circumstances can't explain. That's what Jesus offers. Blessed. Blessed are. Right now, present tense. Not blessed will be. Not blessed could be. If you are poor in spirit, as we'll see, you are, by definition, in that moment, in that decision, in that experience, you are blessed. Blessed are the, the only ones. Definite article. No other way to get there. These beatitudes are the only pathway to this destination. They are the only way to the blessing God wants us to have. They're it. So here's the key word. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The word poor is not a word that you and I associate with being blessed, is it? If you'd like to be happier, be sadder. If you'd like to be better off, be worse off. If you want to be blessed, be poor. And it's worse than even we think it is. Greek language is fascinating. It's got 5 million different words. Been estimated 5 million words in the Greek vocabulary. By contrast, this is the Oxford English Dictionary, 20-volume Oxford English Dictionary, 171,476 words. They document in the English language. 171,000 versus 5 million. And here's an example of that. There are two Greek words that we have to translate poor because we only have one word for them. One word is the word penes, P-E-N-E-S. It's the word for somebody who has nothing to spare. That's what we think of as poor. Blessed are the poor. We think of penes. We think of the person that is living hand to mouth, that's living paycheck to paycheck, that is getting by but just barely. That's not this word. This is a different Greek word. We have to translate it poor because they have more words than we do. It's the word tokos, P-T-O-C-H-O-S. It means the person who has nothing at all. Nothing at all. The person who's about to starve to death. The person who literally does not know where their next meal is coming from. Not just the person with nothing to spare. This is the beggar who is so destitute that if he doesn't receive food today, he'll die. That's that word. That's what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the poor. Even stranger, isn't it? How could you be blessed if you're about to starve to death? Well, here's the qualification. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are desperate spiritually. 
Blessed are those who are starving for God. Blessed are those who know how much they need the Lord. The New English Bible says it really well. Blessed are those who know their need of God. That's the idea. If you want to be blessed, be desperate for God. Why? Here's the rest of the Beatitude. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven is found 30 times in Matthew's gospel. Jesus defines it best, I think, in the model prayer when he teaches us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom comes to the degree that his will is done. His kingdom comes when we make him king. We enter the kingdom of heaven by making him king. When we are poor in spirit, we make God our king. And when we make God our king, then we are blessed by God as a result. So here's how the psychology works of this remarkable beatitude. I want to be my own king. I'm a fallen person just like you. Every single day I succumb, or at least I'm tempted by, the temptation in Genesis 3 from the serpent to Eve to be your own God. John Claypool, one of my favorite writers and preachers, had in one of his autobiographical sermons a statement that when he was growing up, people would ask him what he wanted to be when he grew up. And he knew he was smart enough to give people what they wanted to hear. He wanted to be a fireman or a policeman or the president. But he said, in my heart of hearts, what I really wanted was to be president of the world. And that's me. And that's you. We don't give up our throne easily. We don't really want God to be our king. I don't. I want God to be my Savior for sure. I want Him to forgive my sin and purchase my salvation and save me from hell for heaven. I'm up for that for sure. I want God to be my counselor. I want Him to give me advice when I need it. Now, I can choose to take it or not as I wish, but I want Him to be my counselor. I want God to be my Father because I want Him to love me, and I want to know that I'm loved as unconditionally as a father loves a child. I want God to be my Father. I don't really want God to be my King. I want to be King. I want to be on the throne. I want to be in charge. And I want God to help me get what I want. I want to come to chapel on Sunday so God will bless me on Monday. I want to read the Bible at the start of the day so God will bless my day. I want to give some money to God so God will bless the money I keep. I don't want God to be my king. I want to be king. And so I will only make God my king when I am so desperate for God that I recognize that I must have him as my king. That's when I make him my king. God was a whole lot more my king when our son had cancer. God was a lot more my king when I was serving as a missionary in East Malaysia on the island of Borneo, and I was the loneliest I've ever been. You've had times in your life when God was more your king because you needed a king. Because you realized in those moments, up against those challenges and those crises, and what you were going through, you realized that you weren't getting it done yourself, and you being your own king wasn't working. And so in those times and those places and those challenges and those crises, then we step off the throne, and we get poor in spirit, and we recognize how much we need God, and then we make him our king. And when we do that, we position ourselves to be blessed. And that's how it works. But isn't it a shame that we only do that when we need to, when we have to. That for the most part, we buy into what the culture measures success as. And as long as your finances are okay and doing well and you're reasonably healthy and your kids are good and your grandkids are good and life's kind of hanging together and things are going okay, well, then why do we need another king? 
Why can't we be our own king? And yet the equation is there, and it's pretty simple. Jesus makes it really clear. We measure success by spirituality, blessed, by being blessed, not by being happy. Are you being blessed? Are you experiencing all God has for you? Experiencing God's best. We measure success by spirituality. We measure spirituality by dependence. We are spiritual not by coming to chapel, not by preaching sermons, not by leading worship. We are spiritual to the degree that we are dependent. And we measure dependence by obedience, by making God our king. And that's how it works. So here's the invitation inside all of this. It's really been wrestling inside me. seems to me there are two ways we get at the first beatitude. One way to get there is by problems. Be up against stuff that's so bad. You're up against such challenges, such crisis, such grief, such, such pain in your life that you're willing to abdicate the throne and put him on the throne and be poor in spirit and be desperately in need for God and make him your king so that he can bless you. And those occasions, those episodes come. Let's not wait on that. Let's not wait till the next crisis to be blessed, all right? The other way seems to me we can get there is not through our problems, but through our potential. Pray for a vision of what God could do with your life if he was fully your king. Don't settle for relative happiness. Don't settle for any, anything other than blessed. What would your life look like if the omniscient God of the universe were making your decisions? If he was leading your business? If he was teaching your classes, if he was relating to your friends, if he was helping you be the parent or the grandparent that you want to be, what would your life look like if you were so dependent on God for leadership and direction in your life that you made him the king of your decisions? What would that look like if that God was leading us in his good, pleasing, and perfect will? What would that look like? What would it look like in our lives if the omnipotent power of the universe, of the God of the universe was empowering us? What would that look like? Do you think healings were just a first century deal? I've seen healings. In Cuba, they pray every day for healings, and they see healings every day. Do you think miracles ended when the Bible was written? Or isn't Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever? Are we limiting God by our Settling for happiness rather than driving for blessedness. Do you think God loves Cuba any more than us? I see miracles in Cuba I don't see in America. I've seen miracles in Bangladesh, visions and dreams and signs and wonders in Bangladesh that we don't experience here. I've talked to pastors in underground churches in China who are facing imminent persecution, maybe even imprisonment and worse, and they are seeing the hand and the power of God on their lives and their ministries in ways that would astound us in our culture. Is it that God loves them more than us? Or is it that we're settling for less than they are? What if we settle for nothing less than God's omnipotence, God's power in our lives? What if we settle for nothing less than God's Holy Spirit bringing the world to him through us? Why is it that we see other places, this remarkable fifth great awakening happening in South Korea? We see it in sub-Saharan Africa. We're seeing it in Central and South America. 82,000 conversions a day, according to David Barrett. 
Others think it's more than a million a week. And why is it that only 6,000 of those 82,000 are in Europe and North America combined? Why do we win so few to Christ? Why are our churches so struggling to change the culture? Why is the culture going the direction it's going? Pick the subject. Is it because God's less God? Or settling for less than what he can do in and through us? What would happen if we were poor in spirit? Think about the potential of this. Not just the problems that may drive us there, but the potential that might keep us there if we were poor in spirit. So desperate for God that we king. And by making him king, we were blessed. C.S. Lewis says it better than I can, which happens all the time. He makes this statement, weight of glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So here's my invitation. Would you pray this week for God to give you a vision of what he could do with your life if you were poor in spirit? The answer is different for each of us. God, what would my life look like as a communicator, as a writer, as a speaker? God, what would happen in my life if I was fully dependent on you, if I was truly yielded to you, if you were king of all of me? How blessed would I be? How blessed would others be through me? That's the prayer for me. What's that prayer look like for you? God, give me a vision of the potential of my life if I were poor in spirit, making you my king and being blessed as a result. Would you pray for that? And then would you choose to be blessed? Let's pray. In this holy moment between you and God, I really believe this is a God moment. I really do believe this is an invitation, a parting, a, a why in the road, an opportunity. We can go on about our day. We'll be done with chapel in just a moment. We can have lunch together. We can drive back wherever we're going, and we can kind of go about our week, and we'll have had chapel together, and nothing will really change. Or we can make the first beatitude the foundation of our lives. And nothing will ever be the same. Make your decision with God. Father God, I join my sisters and brothers in what we believe is a holy moment. When we believe, Father God, that you want to give us a vision of what you could do in and with and through and for and by us if we were truly, fully dependent on you. God, don't let the enemy steal this. Don't let the culture drown this out. Holy Spirit, draw us into your vision for us and for the culture where we are salt and light. May we be blessed. May you be glorified. 
is our prayer in Jesus' name.